Welcome to Detour to Neverland, where you are the author of your own Disney story. There's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities. And you can find magic in your everyday life. If you do what you really want to do, you feel like you're playing. How can you write your first chapter today? Dreams are how we figure out where we want to go. Life is how we get there. I'm headed this way. We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine. Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 267, and today we are continuing our restaurant storytelling series where we take a look at different restaurants throughout the Disney resorts, look into their story, and figure out how the story can enhance our next dining experience. So today's topic is paddlefish, but before we move on and get into the meat of the episode, we want to mention our travel agent sponsor for today's episode, Tana Little with Creating Magic Vacations. If you are looking to go to Disney, land, or world, head over to littlebitofdisney.com, and there's a short form there where you can fill out. You can just tell her what you're looking to do, where you want to go, what details that you do know at this point in the planning process, and she will make sure that everything is put in place to make sure that you have a great trip. Remember, you don't have to pay for any of these services. They're completely free, and she will help you plan your trip to Disney. So your trip will be easier, and you will be better because of it. You'll have a much better time, and it's a win-win situation. So again, you can go to littlebitofdisney.com or hit the link down in the show notes and make sure that you tell her that Detour sent you, and happy planning. All right, so we are talking about paddlefish today. This is quickly becoming one of our restaurants of choice. I don't want to call it a go-to because I feel like that wouldn't be accurate, but I feel like we enjoy paddlefish every time we go. We've recently discovered that the rooftop seating is a game changer. We love a good patio um, and it has a cool history. So it's a win all around. This is one of those places and... You know, we've talked about this a little bit in the past about just understanding the space that you're in is more than anything going to enhance your experience. So though I'll be honest, we've eaten here twice since we've moved down here and we've I never went to Fulton's Crab House. So within the past six months was my first time ever being in this building. And now we've been three times, two times before I had no idea about the history of this building. Last night when we went, I had like a fantastic time just like looking around and trying to imagine the history of this space. So that's a little prelude into the bulk of what this episode is going to be about. We have to lay down that foundation before we start. So Paddlefish and this building is located in the landing area of Disney Springs. This has been the only area that we've talked about in Disney Springs so far. It's a transportation district. So when we're thinking about the fictional backstory of Disney Springs, this is where all the transportation is. So Get references to boating, to aviation, to trains, all of the above. And of course, this being a giant paddle boat plays into that story as well. It This version of the restaurant opened in 2017, but we'll talk about the history of the building in a minute. And then it was previously home to Fulton's Crab House from 1996 to 2016. Previously, it had a different name. I don't want to hold that in our back pocket. So Fulton's Crab House, did your family ever eat there? First of all, I never realized that it was there for 20 years. 
No, I mean, thinking about the timeline, 20 years sounds like a very long time. So you'd think with how often we, you know, had, had gone to the parks in our childhood and on trips, this would have been a place that we went to. I don't know if, you know, it just seemed like a fancier kind of place and maybe that's why we avoided it. My parents, my family didn't do Disney the same way that your family did Disney, where you are definitely a sit down meal kind of family, correct? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Correct. My family, really the sit down meals that we did were all revolved around character dining. You know, always ate with the princesses, always did a chef Mickey's. And, you know, for the most part, I feel like everything else that we ever did was just like quick service because we were very much rides obsessed. Pack it all in. Don't sleep, meet the characters, see the parades, the fireworks, all of that. And sitting down, well, that just takes too much time. So I'll say my family was definitely a table service family. Like my parents like to take that break in the way. We also took midday breaks to go back to the resort, which I know your family never did. No. At all. But we honestly did not spend much time in downtown Disney growing up. And we specifically never would have went to this restaurant because my mom doesn't like seafood. So that's probably the reason. And it's more than anything, it's like the smell of seafood as well, I think is what my mom doesn't like. So So. a crab house is not in her wheelhouse. No, this would not be a place (laughs) that we would have typically gone. And I can't even really remember going to eat in too many downtown Disney restaurants. I know we would go there for World of Disney. I mean, of course. But I can't really think of too much. Like, I know a lot of people grew up or, you know, during the... 90s and early 2000s going to Raglan Road, like my family. I don't know if we ever went there, and if we did, it was maybe only once or twice, but there wasn't really too much else. We never went to Planet Hollywood. We never did any of that kind of stuff. Not Rainforest Cafe. I know that was a big thrill for a lot of people, but we had one in Nashville. At the Opry Mills Mall. So that was a big thrill. And so it wasn't special to come to Disney and go to Rainforest Cafe. Whereas people from other parts of the country who don't have one, it was maybe a little bit more of a thrill. But it's uh, so it's an interesting building. I want to, we always say that we're not necessarily doing restaurant reviews for these, but Paddlefish is so much of a new restaurant, you know, relatively new. It's four years old now. I feel like it's worth maybe just sharing some of our recent experiences because we have been there twice for dinner now since moving down here. We can just share some of our thoughts so that people can get a feel for what it is. So from their site, and I think this is pretty accurate, they say that they are proud to celebrate and share fresh seafood catches from our nation's robust and abundant waters. What a tagline. That's actually a mouthful. But I think that's true. They have freshwater options. They have saltwater options. They kind of have that some of those like Mississippi Delta references with catfish and lots of shrimp and sort of a few Cajun dishes, but then they also have your traditional, you know, cod and mahi-mahi and things like that. But spoiler alert, there's not necessarily a story for paddlefish, which is a little bit unfortunate, but I would imagine many of you probably could have picked up on that beforehand. It's just a seafood restaurant. There's really no like backstory. It doesn't tie into anything. 
It's just kind of there, and that's what they do. But the history of the building is really what's intriguing to Disney fans like us. So we've been here a couple of times. Do you have like some standout things that you've really enjoyed or you know recommendations that you would give? Well, so looking at the menu, the first thing that I noticed, so the first time we went, we went for Brendan's birthday, and they have crab-topped fries as an appetizer. It comes with a sauce, uh, crab meat, french fries, everything that I love. So I've gotten that both times that we've gone. That was very good. Um, it wasn't like piping hot, which is kind of strange. Like I don't want to say that the crab is cold, but it's definitely not super hot. So that's something to keep in mind if you're weird about that. Like I had a roommate in college who would only eat food that was piping hot. So if you're like that, it might not be the dish for you. I was not aware of that. Oh, really? Oh, no. surprise. Um, we've gotten steak there, which has been good. I even got, they have an appetizer that's like a steak skewer. So the second time that I went, I just got two, the two appetizers and it was the perfect meal. So I would recommend that. And I've had the ribeye and I've had the stuffed cod and they're all excellent. Next time we have to get the crab guacamole. Now, you don't like guac, but I guess I would eat it for the entire table. Or we'd take your sister. Yeah, and the two of you would definitely eat it. And so it's it's very good. I do think Paddlefish overall is a little bit overpriced for normally what we're looking for. But you're paying for the ambiance more than anything, I think. Well, and you have to remember. So we have two boat restaurants in the landing. You know, we have Boathouse, which we've talked about recently, and now we have Paddlefish. And if we're being honest, if we had to pick between the two, we're going to pick Boathouse every time. Because, I mean, Boathouse is honestly just a league of its own, in our opinion. So when it comes to like a seafood restaurant, and if you're looking to pay that much for like a special Disney Springs dining meal or special occasion... We veer towards Boathouse. There's a few kind of instances that I think Paddlefish makes a lot of sense for if you're coming down to Walt Disney World. One is if there's no other options available. Paddlefish (laughs) has, and I don't say that in a bad way. I'm saying Paddlefish is so big, they have a lot of reservations available, especially on open table. And recently, we've had some like walk-up luck, I guess. So it's always worth checking And then the other instance is something we haven't talked about on the podcast before, and we actually didn't even know about it until we moved down here. So every August through October, Visit Orlando, like the tourism group, puts on this event called Magical Dining in Orlando. And so it's an event to try to get people to try these more upscale restaurants at a cheaper price point. And Paddlefish is one of those restaurants that participates in this every year. So it's a prefix menu, $35 per person. You get an appetizer, an entree, and a dessert. It is almost always way more food than anybody could eat. Mm-hmm. But it's a really nice, you know, $35 sounds like a lot, but, you know. When you look at the menu, it it makes sense. And there's not too many Disney restaurants that participate in this. I think it's only here and STK are the only ones that come to the top of my mind. Yeah, but and even when Brendan says like a prefixed menu, there are still choices. 
but it's just not, you don't have the whole menu to choose from. So like when we went for Brendan's birthday, that's what my sister opted to do because the things that she was interested anyway just happened to be part of the magical dining. So it made sense. It also is something that makes sense that if you're going to be in Orlando around that time period and you want to go off property for a meal, it's a good thing to look up to see which restaurants are participating. It's a, it's pretty cool. You don't, you do not get any discounts on top of that $35 though. The reason for that being is that it's a charity event. So $1 of every meal is donated to charity and you can go to visit Orlando and see what the, all, they give them to various charities and they raise a ton of money for it. So it's a pretty cool event if you want to check that out. So I think if you're already in Disney Springs in August through October, that's a nice way. The one thing I wish it included like a cocktail or something in that price as well, but that's just me being picky. <laughs> but that's pretty much it like for our unofficial review of Paddlefish. It's really nice. It's now somewhere that, you know, we're obsessed with, especially this time of year. We're obsessed with patio bars and, you know, patio seating. This is a place they have both a third story bar and a first story bar on the, oh man, I don't know my ship lingo. Is the... The forward and and the... the, Oh, I don't know. There's like an aft. I'm trying to think... You know, we used to look up cruising all the time. Not that we used to cruise a lot, but, you know, they divide the rooms into the different sections. So anyway, there's one on the front and one on the back. The uh, one on the front is on the first floor. Um, and this place is packed with bars as well. So I feel like it's definitely somewhere that, is, especially once things get back to more normal, you could walk in and just say, I want bar seating. And they probably tell you, like, Second floor, go left. Or third floor, go right. Because they have at least three or four bars in this building. And when we talk about the history of it, that might make a little more sense on why it's laid out that way. Yes. Ready for history. Ready for it. So very first thing that you need to understand about this building, and Catherine and I actually had a disagreement on this. We did. It was a heated discussion. This building is not a boat. I'm sorry if that spoils it for anybody, but it is just a boat-shaped building where the foundation is submerged just a few feet below the water, and they basically built up the facade of this paddle boat on top of it. And what this facade, and you can you can see it still quite a bit today, maybe not as much as if you look at historical pictures, but it's supposed to be a mid-1800s Mississippi riverboat. So think like the Mark Twain era, you know, that kind of thing. I was curious when I, you know, when you look at the pictures of when they were building this and and how it came to be, it's like, what were they going off of? And, I, you know, obviously Disney has built real riverboats in the past as well. So if you think about the Mark Twain riverboat in Disneyland, it was an opening day attraction in 1955. So that one would have been very well established by this time in 1976 when they were building this one in what is now Disney Springs. I also wanted to look into the two Magic Kingdom riverboats. So there have been two in the history of Magic Kingdom. One is the Admiral Joe Fowler. And if you're curious, that's named after Disneyland's construction supervisor. 
and it debuted on October 2nd, 1971. Now, there has to be a story there that we're going to look into in the future of why did it open the day after Magic Kingdom opened. So that's a story for a later date. I'm sure we'll cover it eventually. But this paddle boat, the first one for Magic Kingdom, was accidentally destroyed when they dropped it off of a crane in 1980. Had you ever heard about this before? I have never. I'm honestly just trying to picture why they would even need to put a riverboat on a crane. I think if if I'm like theorizing, I would assume it would be like a dry dock situation or something. Like maybe like right now when they just emptied out the river, maybe they had to lift it up, you know, for that time period. And then they accidentally dropped it. I bet someone got in trouble. Probably so. The other riverboat that Magic Kingdom had was the Richard F. Irvine. He was a WED executive. It debuted in 1973, just a few years after Magic Kingdom opened. And this is the same boat that we have today. It was renamed to the Liberty Bell in 1996. So my question for you, Catherine, is we have those two names, Richard F. Irvine and Admiral Joe Fowler. Can you think of where we see those names today? So these are not, these are different boats than the one that are in the, like the Mark Twain that go around that little area. Like that's a separate boat. Well, that is, that's the Liberty Bell, which was originally the Richard F. Irvine. Oh, I mean, so that's where it's from. No. No? I mean, you wouldn't have been there and you wouldn't have remembered in 1996 that it was the Richard F. Irvine. Well, no. Okay, so the two now you see two boats that are named this, and they're in the Seven Seas Lagoon. They are the ferry boats that take you from the TTC to Magic Kingdom. Those are two out of the three. Oh, uh, so what's the third one? Joe Potter. I think his name's Joe. I'm assuming he's another Imagineer. I don't know. I didn't research that one. I just researched these two of the paddle boats that were in Magic Kingdom. Oh, okay. Well, I guess we'll just assume. This was all kind of building up to that. Obviously, Disney had this idea of what a paddle boat looked like in this world or the worlds that they had created both in Disneyland Park and in the Magic Kingdom. And they took a lot of those same principles and put them on to this ship. So let's get to the name. The structure opened as the Empress Lily. Named after Lillian Disney, who christened the ship at the opening on May 1st, 1976. And we briefly mentioned this when we originally talked about the landing and the history of this area. And at that time, I was still convinced that it was a boat. I have to be honest, there's still like a sliver, a little part of me that still wants to believe that this is a boat, just like part of me still has to believe that the tree of life is an actual tree. I think it just it's just part of believing. I mean if you if it makes the story better in your mind to believe that the tree of life is real and that this is a real boat, be my guest. I mean it absolutely does. Lillian Disney came to the opening to christen a boat. I feel like it makes a better story than christening a pretend boat. So we kind of, this is the first kind of stopping point that I want to point out of why this building is so special. So if you think about 1976, Walt had passed around seven years ago at this point, and 
obviously Magic Kingdom was doing well. And, you know, if we're looking at Walt Disney World, that's the only park at this point. And it probably would have been a very big deal for Lillian to come, you know, so far after she was widowed to be here for this ceremony and to get this ship, fake ship, named after her would be a cool thing as well. We talk about all the time about how Disneyland, you know, there's just an aura about it because you're in all these places that Walt walked. And everything just kind of has that extra piece of magic or nostalgia or history that is associated with that. And I think this is one of those instances that you get that in Walt Disney World as well. When I walked into the lobby last night, I mean, that's what I was thinking about. It's like, you know, Lillian would have walked through this area. Like, this would have been the place that they had the ceremony. Maybe they went up on the third deck, you know, and just trying to imagine how the history has affected this space and just trying to put yourself into that time period. Well, and it's also just interesting to think that this building is that old and to a certain extent like that historic because, you know, even now when you think about Disney Springs, downtown Disney, it all seems so new, but it's crazy to recognize that, you know, this area has a pretty extensive history. You know, this area, it was originally known as the Lake Buena Vista Shopping Village when it opened. And, you know, then it changed to the Walt Disney World Village shortly after that in 1989. So, you know... It's just fun to remember that the extensive history here can also tie into that same feeling that you're talking about, Brendan, with having like a historic relevance. I also need to point out, because I just, as soon as I said it, I questioned myself because I suck at math. Walt would be passed away for 10 years at this point. He passed away in 1966. So a full 10 years had passed and Lillian is still involved with the company, which I think is really cool. I mean, it was a family business. It was a family business. I don't, I know it's documented. I don't exactly know how his inheritance worked. Do you? I have no clue. So I'm wondering if, I guess my question is, did she still have stake in the company? I mean, I'm sure it was part of his estate. Oh, yeah. You would have to think, you know, since he knew that his health was declining, he got all that stuff in order. But I also want to set the stage for what was Walt Disney World like in 1976? We mentioned Magic Kingdom would be the only park at this point. We're still about six years away from Epcot opening and becoming a real-life thing. At this point, the air is known as the Lake Buena Vista Shopping Village. And that was only for like one or two years in the existence of this building. Then it was quickly changed over to the Walt Disney World Village, which most people at that time would have just called it Disney Village, and that's kind of the the unofficial name that it was given at this time. And so if you think about the layout of Disney Springs right now, it's basically running from where Rainforest Cafe is around that lake to where Paddlefish is. And that was it. That was the entire space. So especially all those buildings back there, like at the co-op and the art store, like the Star Wars trading post, like those are all very old buildings that were there. I think a lot of them were there from the beginning. Well, and it's funny because when you look at like the architecture and the actual story of Disney Springs now, in that story too, 
that is the oldest part of the springs. So it makes sense. You know, they're still kind of carrying that history over from it. I also had a question at this point of, you know, do you think this boat in particular plays a role in how they develop the fictional story of Disney Springs? So we know the story of Disney Springs starts in the mid-1800s. And because this boat is in that same time period as well, do you think that's why they pick that as the starting point so that it still makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that this would be, since it does have such a history, it would definitely be a hard thing to part with. You know, you don't want to have to completely redo the structure or the architecture, and you don't want to get rid of the historical significance. So maybe it would make sense to kind of build something around, not necessarily around this piece, but to use something that you could tie into it. I think the specific location of this building is interesting as well, because now we see it as it's kind of all jumbled up together. But if you think about it at that time, like T-Rex wouldn't be there. And, you know, some of those bridge buildings that get you from like the World of Disney area over there, it, this building was intentionally kind of set back off of there to make it seem a little bit separate because this was a fine dining establishment. And so they almost wanted you to walk past all the shops and have a little bit of time so that you didn't feel like you were eating in like a mall setting as much. So it was kind of off on its own, somewhere that you had to go on a little bit of an adventure, a little bit of a walk to get to back there, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I'm sure that would make it feel, you know, more special. Like you're going out of your way to go there. So... This building, it opened with four separate entertainment and dining areas. And I think this is where you can kind of see, like, why are there so many bars and why is it kind of sliced up kind of weird? So we're going to talk about all of these areas specifically. The first one that I am super sad that this is not here anymore is the Baton Rouge Lounge. It was located on the forward of the main deck. This is where there was live music. There were cocktails. They had all kinds of things. I looked at some of the cocktails that were on the list. They had a Mark Twain cocktail, a Mississippi River water, Huckleberry's cooler, all kinds of stuff. But the main thing here was this group of comedians slash um, musicians called the Riverboat Rascals. And so during this time period, like these, these guys had like a cult following almost. Like there's pictures of all of them. They always had like... You know, they, were, they would obviously perform on different nights, but these riverboat rascals, I mean, people loved them, and it seems like it was just like a ruckus, amazing time. Of course, we love like New Orleans, like that kind of stuff as well, so I would imagine we would have had a lot of fun there. Do you think it's the same kind of cult following that, you know, other performers now see, like a Yeehaw Bob or, you know, something similar well, that came to my mind was, is this the old version of like Yeehaw Bob? Is, or, you know, maybe Yeehaw Bob's performance takes some inspiration from the Riverboat Rascals because it was very specific that it was both kind of a comedy show and a musical performance. And you definitely saw that in Yeehaw Bob's show as well. For those of you who are not familiar, he performed at uh, Port Orleans Riverside and the River Roost for years of so another New Orleans reference there. One of the sweetest men 
ever and one of the best performers ever. Unfortunately, he's been laid off. You can still catch his live show on Facebook. Search, every Sunday night. Every Sunday night. Search for Yeehaw Bob Jackson on Facebook. You can watch him. Still does the full thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, both of our minds went there, I think, of New Orleans reference, live music, and drinks. Okay, so this next part of The Empress Lily is the one that really gets me. I mean, it honestly makes me giggle because I just don't think it fits at all. But the second restaurant that they hosted in this space was called the Steerman's Quarters. And it was in the aft section of the main deck. And it basically specialized in Angus beef entrees. And it's funny because even the name, so Steerman's Quarters, I mean, it was like a Western cattle, you know, decorated kind of nostalgic type of restaurant on this boat you know, in the, in the other section of the boat, like we're going to talk about in a second, it's fine dining. You have this super cool, like Louisiana Baton Rouge bar. And then here you have a Western area. Well, you and have to think about the 70s and the 80s. Like people love that. I know, but it is funny. Like I just feel like it doesn't fit, especially knowing that the past two restaurants that have been in this space have both been seafood. You know, honestly, what this made me think of, if you've ever watched Fresh Off the Boat. I knew you were going to bring this up. How can you not bring this up? So Fresh Off the Boat, it's a sitcom. It's hilarious. You've got to watch it. Um, What's the actor's name? Randall Park. Yes, who everyone should know from WandaVision as Jimmy Woo. He's the epic detective. Um, So basically... The show is just all about um, this This family. An immigrant family moved to Orlando and he bought into this chain of restaurants called Cattleman's Ranch. And it was basically everything described here, like basically like a longhorn steakhouse on steroids. Yeah, like a big stuffed bear, like gaudy as all get out. And, you know, maybe that's not really what Steerman's Quarters was. But in my mind, I'm picturing Cattleman's Ranch. And if that doesn't make you chuckle, then I don't know what will. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it's probably tacky. It's probably, you know, lots of browns, lots of leathers. I'm just picturing like a longhorn. On like this boat. On this boat, which yeah. is funny to think about. Next was the Fisherman's Deck. It was located on the forward on the promenade deck. And this was the seafood restaurant. So they had all kinds of, they had oysters, they had clams, um, lots of saltwater seafood. They didn't have as much of the freshwater seafood that maybe you'd see now at Paddlefish. And then the main thing here, the main kind of uh, what got people in the door was the Empress Room. It was located on the aft of the promenade deck. And this was the formal dining establishment. You required reservations in advance. They had two seatings per night, 6.30 and 9 o'clock. And this room was extravagantly decorated. It had gold-trimmed walls. It had, like, Victorian-style decorations. And then they had this very well-known chef, a Hungarian chef named Gary Reich, which, I don't know, you're the— your family's from Hungary, right? I Yeah, I actually am. So I don't know if you know how to pronounce his last name. 
But he developed this original menu for the Empress Room, and people raved about it. Like, they just loved this, and it really elevated his status as well. So you think about now, you got the Baton Rouge Lounge, the Riverboat Rascals have their, you know, following. following, and then you also have this chef who people love so much that he has a following. So everything from the forward to the aft was a hit on this boat. And then you throw on top of this for breakfast, they had character dining. And so this is where many of you, we asked in our Facebook group this week of, did any of you guys get to experience this? Did you ever go to the Empress Lily? And so I know quite a few of you did. Our friend Jackie did. She said it was the first time she ever met Mickey Mouse was here. How magical. Our friend Lauren said her husband has very vivid memories of coming here. And so it's a really, really cool history of this space. Now, some things that we read said that this was, it always says, one of the first character dining places on Walt Disney World property. I think we were able to compare some dates and whatnot. I don't think it was the first character breakfast. I think... That title is for the Coco Nino Cove at the Contemporary. So if any of you guys went to the Coco Nino Cove at the Contemporary, please let me know. That sounds like something that belongs to the Polynesian, but it was very much so at the Contemporary. But something that came up when I was researching this, Catherine, did you know that Chef Mickey's used to be in Disney Village? No. If that you had is to, shocking. If you had to guess in that area, so where in do you th- the crescent in the crescent moon shaped space that you described, where do you think it was? I want to go with like the Giardelli area, like right, you know, right there by the gift store. That makes sense, you know. Put put Mickey by the gift store. Rainforest Cafe. That's hilarious. Actually, so that space started as just the village restaurant, and then it eventually got taken over by Mickey and became Chef Mickey's Village Restaurant. And then eventually they moved it over to the Contemporary Resort. So, really interesting, and a lot of things going on there. Other thing I wanted to ask you how much do you think this character breakfast cost? The one in the Empress Lily? Yeah. Um, 20 bucks. When it first started, it was $6 and 50 cents. Oh my goodness. Gratuity included. (gasps) That's incredible. The other really cool thing about this character dining that they had here, and it's honestly brilliant. And I wish they would still do this is they kind of sold this as, all right, Hey, you kids are getting to come to this very fine dining establishment. Like at nighttime we have you know, the white tablecloths out, but you're going to come here for breakfast. Mickey and all of his friends are here. And so this is a great time for you to practice your manners in a formal setting. And so they would practice, you know, using the right fork and don't put your elbows on the table. It almost gives off a little 50s primetime vibes, but more formal of a setting. Without being yelled at. And then at the end of the meal, each of the children would get the certificate of approval saying that they had performed their manners well during this meal, and it was signed by Mickey, and it was really cute. I, I saw at one point they did their certificate, and then they switched over, and they gave like a pennant or something oh. in exchange for 
being on your manners, but you almost wish they kind of still did that. I know that's really fun. I mean, cause it kind of gives you, you could even spin it. If you, if Disney still wanted to do something like that as like a formal tea party, you know, I feel like if they were to do something, I would want to see like Alice. I'd want to see Mary Poppins, you know, some of the princesses. I feel like you could tie into it and it could be like a really fun tea party. You know, you could dress up. I feel like you have to dress up. You need the gloves, a hat. That'd be awesome. You know, if they did something like this now and made it like a a formal event and they're going to like put Mickey in his tuxedo and Minnie in a gown. So cute. You, They could charge 200 bucks and people would go to it. I mean, we would go to it like once a year. Yeah. I mean, just for the experience, like a high tea with Minnie Mouse. How cool. I'm thinking, you know, like that could even be like an Easter thing that they did. Like do one of those big banquet halls. I don't know if anybody else ever did this, but that's what, so we, we, I don't know how it's come up twice in this episode, but Opryland (laughs) and Nashville for Easter and Thanksgiving in their huge banquet halls, they used to have a very formal dinner and the Easter bunny would be there and it was a, a buffet. And so just in gigantic rooms, who knows how many people they served those days, probably thousands because it was like different rooms and everything. You get lost going up to the buffet and trying to find your <laughs> table. But anyway, that's kind of what I'm picturing here is that would be a really, really cool setting. And how cool that some people, I mean, like Jackie, this was where she met Mickey Mouse for the very first time. It makes me wonder why they took away character dining from Disney Springs. I'm sure it's to get you to go to the parks. I'm sure that's the ultimate goal. I think there's still plenty of money to be spent at Disney Springs. But I remember once, it's been a few years, but at one point in time, um, we went to Disney for like a spring break or something. And they were testing like a meet and greet with princesses in World of Disney. Because we have pictures with, I think, like Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella, where the line was in World of Disney. So they've obviously thought about it since then i just wonder why it hasn't stuck yeah i think we can explain that a little bit in one of our points further down of of why it didn't stick but it'd be interesting because obviously they had success in doing that at the resorts like you get it at chef mickey's you get it doesn't kate may do i believe they do character dining as well uh you get it at trattoria al forno pause is that the one that you hate Cape May Cafe? Yeah. Well, I've never been there. You don't like the smell. One time, I was feeling fine, having a wonderful day in Disney, and I walked by there, and some... I love seafood, but some smell hit me in the face, and I've never been so ill so quickly in my life. I so I don't know. I'm pretty sure they do not have character dining. My family frequents there. I'm pretty sure they do for breakfast. Okay, this is another boat situation. <laughs> <laughs> At least they did, I'm saying. And Kate okay. May still hasn't opened back up. So, who knows? But yeah, I mean, it would you almost wish that they could still do it at Disney Springs, but I wonder if it's just a thing of like I don't know. Uh if they can pull it off at Boardwalk, they could pull it off at Disney Springs if they wanted to. I would think so. They can do anything. 
couple of other things that I wanted to cover just on the uniqueness and the history of this building. There was a very random event that was held here for only like four months in 1980. So if any of you were there, please let me know because this sounds amazing. So it was called Monday Night Huddles. And so players and members of the coaching staff from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers would drive in, come to the Empress Lily, and they would break down the film from the previous day's game that the Buccaneers played. Like on TV? Yeah, they had a huge screen, and so they'd be there and, you know, they'd walk through the highlights of the previous day's game of, you know, hey, he threw a touchdown here, here's what we saw, you know, things like that. And then what would happen afterwards, if you got a ticket to this event, is you got to watch Monday Night Football with the Buccaneers players. Oh. But they only did it for one year. Well, not even a whole year. I mean, just September to December. Well, yeah, one football season. season. So really, really interesting. Like, who would have ever guessed that this would would be a building for that? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just kind of a touristy, you know, sports fan. Maybe this was like a precursor or just part of like the whole ESPN expansion that we've talked about where they were just trying to see what would work. So last thing I want to mention, this is probably the coolest thing here of everything in the story. We mentioned the Society of Explorers and Adventurers in the episode about Jock Lindsay's hangar bar. And so Jock Lindsay is a known member of C. There are further historical references to C in downtown Disney slash Disney Village slash Disney Springs, all this whole area. We haven't gotten there yet, and we'll eventually talk about this in full, but there's another member of C that we know there that has a backstory named Meriwether Adam Pleasure. Name Pleasure Island is named after him. There's ties into the Adventurers Club and the other things that were in Pleasure Island. But this building plays a role in that as well. This was supposedly his boat that like he he was the owner of it. And it was, so the story is that originally it was known as the Floating Arts Palace. Mr. Pleasure bought the ship in 1911 and turned it into a houseboat and an office during the construction of the island's facilities. So when Pleasure Island was being built, he lived in the Empress Lily in this backstory. Now, there's a little bit of an issue there. 1911, oh, no, 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 the boat was Modeled off the mid 1800s, so it does yes. check out. I was thinking, you're thinking the timelines didn't match up, but they do match up. They do match up. So that's pretty cool as well. So I'm now I'm just begging to know: is there anything at all in Paddlefish that has any references to this era? So really, what I'm getting from this is we need to go Easter egg hunting at Paddlefish because I feel like to have a backstory like that, even if they just kind of snuck it in there just a teeny tiny bit. I mean, there's got to be some sort of relic or picture somewhere or, I don't know, a loose floorboard. There's got to be something. So my plan is if we can search the entire boat and we don't find any reference to see, we got to plant something. Oh, my gosh. Are we? Could we do that? I don't know. Could we do that? 
I'd say we get like a little vinyl emblem or something, and who's to say we don't go into the bathroom and just stick it on the wall? Who knows? Be pretty epic. <laughs> if you uh, see something like that someday, cannot confirm nor deny. I have a cricket. But there's, there's, like, it's too, it's too perfect, you know? Like It is. It's a shame that Pleasure Island and that backstory has been taken away from us. And, we, and you and I never really got to experience that. From what we hear about it, like, we would have thrived there, you know? Well, <laughs> our bank, I don't know if that sounds good or bad. <laughs> our bank account would have suffered. But just, you know, knowing that it's somewhere that we could, it's telling you a story at the same time as it, you're getting entertainment. Like, that's that's our jam. It would be awesome, yeah. And so, you know, you get some of that in Hangar Bar, and that's why we enjoy it so much. That's why we enjoy Gideon so much. Like, it's this huge Easter egg sitting right there in front of you. Like, don't... Don't tempt us with a good time like that. (laughs) Yep. So, next question is, what happened? Like, all of these things are sunshine and rainbows. Like, this sounds like a great thing that happened, and basically, the 90s happened. (laughs) Thanks, 90s. So... When the mid-1990s rolled around, Disney had decided that they were going to really revamp this Disney Village area into what now we would know as downtown Disney. And so part of this decision in this revamp was basically to sublease or to subcontract every single building that was there in an effort to reduce their risk and so that basically they would just collect the rent checks over time. And so the levies group came in, signed a 20-year lease for Fulton Crab House, and that's what happened. They renovated it. They painted it all white. They took off the Empress Lily embossment on the very back of it. They removed the paddle wheel, and they removed the smokestacks. And all of that in itself should have been a crime. I, I think Disney should not have let that happen. Like, by all means, like, take it over. Make it into Fulton's Crab House and do with it what you want. But I feel like because of its history, because of, you know, Lillian coming and being there and it was somewhat significant, I just feel like, I mean, where is Disney's sentimentality over some of these things? Like, how are they not hurt by seeing that happen? I mean, maybe we're being more mushy about it than we should be. Like, maybe it wasn't a big deal. I don't know. But, like, it's just odd. Well, I can tell you, I have read a lot of historical accounts and even some newspaper articles about this time period. And people were upset um, because this was, you know, I think by that time, the Empress Lily was 20 years old. It needed help. It was probably time for a refurb, you know, probably the settlement's ranch or settlement's quarters, whatever we called it. Now I've got cattleman's ranch on my I know. (laughs) Steerman's. Steerman's quarters was probably outdated by that time. Who knows? And so it probably needed something, and then it was just easier for them to let it go and to let somebody else come in. But yeah, I, I think I could even deal with a lot of the other things, but changing the name of the boat to no longer be... The, the uh, Empress Lily. The Empress Lily, I think, is the biggest crime. 
it had a beautiful nameplate on the back right above the paddle. So they removed, yeah, the nameplate, the paddle, and the smokestack. So if so you, it was just a weird shell. Yeah. And so, of course, now if you go to Paddlefish, you will see that the, the paddle is back. Good. Paddlefish. Because it's part of their name. And one of the smokestacks is back as well. It's not the originals, but they were able to put some in and at least bring back some of that history of this building. But it's just, you know, it's, look, Paddlefish is a great addition to Disney Springs. It's normally pretty full. I mean, I think they do their fair share of business, but it is just a little bit frustrating to now view this through a historical lens. And before this, we knew nothing about this. There's no references to it there. There's There's not even a plaque. Yeah. Give us a plaque. Yeah. I mean, because you, you get some stuff like that in Disneyland, like you get you know, little things of history about Walt and, and the Imagineers and how they did this. And this was a vital, vital role in the early history of Walt Disney World. And I don't think it gets the respect that it probably deserves. I just don't think people know. I guess that's our part <laughs> of what we're trying to do. I mean, it's just a really cool building. And I would say, even if you're not going to eat there, it's super easy to just kind of walk Wander around. In. Yeah. They've got the outdoor staircases. So you don't even have to walk into the building. You can walk up the sides. Not promoting that, just saying if you happen to wander and find your way in there, then it's worth doing. Or, you know, we just went for drinks the other night. It was fine. We still had to talk to the hostess. You know, they did actually sit us at a table and they were even mindful about where the sun was. So that we wouldn't get burnt, which of course we appreciated, but it was super easy and we would recommend it. So if you had to go back in time and you got to be there for the the golden age of the Empress Lily, which of the four areas do you think you would have spent the most time in? Oh, that's not what I thought you were going to ask. Okay. I'm going to answer two questions then. Um, I think realistically we would probably spend the most time in the Baton Rouge lounge just because I think it would be a fun atmosphere. I mean, Um, you're bound to have a good time. All I'm thinking about is how many times would we have a song request to Colin Baton Rouge by Garth Brooks? Oh my God. If it didn't happen every night, then you are doing something wrong, honestly. But um, the question that I thought you were going to ask, and I'm going to make you answer this too, is what would you be the most excited to see? Like which room would you want to go to? Part of me wants to pick the fancy room, but the fresh off the boat part of me has to pick Steerman's quarters because I think it'd be funny. I would want to see, you know, since we have this backstory with C and there's supposed to be like, it was supposed to be a houseboat at some point. Surely there were references to that in there during, well, no. During the Pleasure Island days, do you mean? Yeah. See, there's the problem is because this was before Pleasure Island. So it would have been Fulton's Crab House by then. And I don't think they had any references. No. they If they got rid of everything Empress Lily, they were definitely not about to put some C references in there for us. Yeah. So I guess that doesn't... I don't know. I would I would pay... I don't care what's in a Mississippi River water cocktail, but I would drink it. <laughs> Maybe you should care. <laughs> but I do think... This is another thing we talked about off air is, you know, there's... A lot of 
obviously when you go to Disneyland, there are so many references to New Orleans. And obviously that was a place that was very near and dear to Walt's heart. You know, he loved that area. He loved the food. He loved the culture. He loved the music. He loved everything about it. And we do miss that quite a bit in Walt Disney World. So we did have it in Dixie Landing, which is now the Port Orleans Resorts. But, you know, he didn't have too much, I, I don't, if at all. If any, yeah. Probably none at all, say in that, unless he just told somebody that he wanted a... That he thought it'd be cool. But, yeah, so that is kind of an area that I feel like we miss. Like, New Orleans Square, you could eat and enjoy a full day just there in Disneyland. And maybe that's just us because we love beignets and we love the mint juleps and we love the Haunted Mansion. And, and pirates. And pirates. But it is something that I think you miss in Walt Disney World of something that was near and dear to Walt's heart. And I think you got a little bit of it here. You know, again, you would assume he had little to no planning at all in this particular um, location. But they obviously understood him and knew him well enough that, yeah, he would love more New Orleans references. And, you know, the Mississippi Delta, that area of the country that he really enjoyed. So, I don't know. It's a really, really cool story. It's just one of those, it kind of tugs at you. It's like, man, you you really wish that that stuck around. I know, or just to see it in its heyday. That's the worst part <laughs> about researching all these things is, you know, the history that we appreciate so much just seems so cool. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to get to see everything that is new and everything that's coming and how everything has evolved. But, you know, part of you, I feel like is always going to wish that you could see the original. Yep. So anything else you want to cover for this paddlefish episode that was barely about paddlefish? I don't think so. It's, it's about the Empress Lily. This is the Empress Lily episode. That's what it is. We are going to start a uh, softball team now called the um, Riverboat Rascals. If oh, anybody wants to join us. I mean, I, I would definitely create a t-shirt that said the Riverboat Rascals. And I don't care how many people got the reference. It would be awesome to me. It might just be you and me, but that's okay. Or greetings from the Baton Rouge Lounge. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. But... Thank you so much for listening to our early morning listeners. We do apologize this week of putting out both episodes in the evenings. Hopefully we made your Tuesday and your Friday commute a little bit better. Um, but we'll get back to posting them in the mornings for our normal release schedule. Of course, if you enjoyed this episode, leaving us an iTunes review is absolutely the best way to help us grow. And we truly appreciate it. We love seeing those reviews come in. And then again, if you are in the planning process or just speculative about when you might want to come back, go ahead and get some pricing. Reach out to Hannah. You can find her link down in the show notes below or to a little bit of Disney.com. Fill out that free quote tool and she can get the ball rolling and present some of those options for you so that you could plan your next trip. Got some Disneyland news. Maybe that might spark some people's interest. So June 4th, be here before we know it. Maybe Disneyland will be open up to non- California residents, hopefully at least by the end of the summer. Maybe not on June 4th, but maybe by the time kids go back to school. Before kids go back to school, Brendan, how dare you? Teachers deserve Disneyland too. I know I'm saying hopefully they allow non-California residents before 
teachers and students go back to school. Okay. You accept that? I, I accept that. Okay. So, again, you can reach her at littlebitofdisney.com or click the link in the show notes below and make sure that you tell our detour sent you. So thank you so much for listening. We will be back on Monday. Hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will chat with you real soon. Thank you for listening to Detour to Neverland. Make sure you subscribe and leave us an iTunes review if you enjoyed the show. Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Detour to Neverland or visit DetourToNeverland.com. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. See you real soon.